Are we on? I must say, I never thought the day would come where I stand here preaching from a Mac. (laughs) Because it's a slippery slope. I've always used paper and everything, but then I got this hand-me-down this week, so I thought, let me try it. Maybe it's more anointed. But yeah, I've been away. I was away for the last two Sundays. One of them, I was desperately ill with fever and stuff, and then last week I was in Cape Town for Andrea had a film premiere there. So it just shows I so miss corporate worship. I don't know if any of you have been away for even a one or two Sundays. When you come back into corporate worship, just something that's just different. So it was such a blessing today just to be part of that. Um, we've got a title slide. There it is. We're doing a series in Colossians, so Lenny did an excellent job last week. I listened to it on God. His message was how to guard against self-made religion. It's kind of Jesus plus, the list could go on, philosophy, traditions, Judaism. Today, there's so much. Jesus plus my YouTube gurus I go to. Jesus plus a little bit of self-help. And, and what's so interesting is I think, I think that message is... That is the religion of the day. Most of the people you speak to today, they've got a hybrid spirituality. And many of them like Jesus. They're not necessarily against Jesus. They like him, but just a bit of him. They don't like it when he says things like, I am the way, the truth and the life. Then he's crossed the line. But his teachings and his moralism and stuff, people like. So I think, I think the book of Colossians is extremely relevant still today, but I'm going to be dipping into chapter 2. So you can open your Bibles there already. Um, Colossians chapter 2, that's pretty much where we're going to be the whole time. I don't have any other places. I might just quote scriptures as we go, but this is going to be like base camp we're going to work from. Base camp. And there's three, there's, I've tried to boil it down to about three main things. There's, when I was looking at this passage, there's so much in here. Um, but I want to look at these three truths. What does it mean to be alive, forgiven, and free? So those three, there were, there were many other things in here. And I think just to give a bit of a summary of what, that's going to be hard, but what Leonard preached last week is, I don't know what your answer would be. If, you, if you've read the letter of Colossians, how would you summarize it in one sentence? For me, I mean, just think about it. For me, I would say, the fullness of God is in Jesus. And He is sufficient. He is enough. That is one of the overarching messages he's getting at over and over, is you don't need Jesus plus. There aren't levels you're supposed to climb. Once you get Christ, you get all the fullness of God. Amen. You're complete in him. And from from your, your first day as a Christian, moving onwards, you're not necessarily getting more of Jesus, if you know what I'm saying. We pray that often, and we we genuinely say, I want more of you. But I hope you understand what you 
saying when you sing those words? You're not necessarily saying Jesus has given me 20% of himself. And Jesus, please give me 30. And then maybe next week, please give me 40. He has given you how much of himself? All of himself. But what we're saying as we go on in our Christian life is we're saying, I want to experience more of you. I want to experience more of your closeness, your life being produced in me, your nearness. Amen. Otherwise, you're going to end up, those, those words that you pray and the things you believe make a difference. I can promise you that. If you are still praying, Jesus, I want to find you. What are you implying to yourself each time you say that? You don't have him. So I think we must be careful in our prayers. I don't sit with my wife, Andrea, on date night. And she's there, a little bit of it's load shedding, so it's romantic. There's candles. There's my wife. We love Asian foods. So we're often eating Asian. So if we're sitting there, and Andrea's in front of me, and we're in the middle of a conversation, and I say, oh, Babes, even though I never say babes, babes, I just want to find you tonight. How would she respond? She'd blow out the candles. <laughs> Time's over, it's done. No, I would never say that. I'm in relationship with her. From my first day of marriage, I said, I give you all of me, John Mayer. <laughs> and she says, I'm giving you all of me. But what was in, in experience, we went on honeymoon and we realized, okay, we need to grow this relationship. We thought we really knew each other, but sometimes we're still sitting across from one another and we're learning to understand. We're learning to love one another. But I'm going to have no more of Andrea on day, on year 80 than I had on day one. I've just learned to enjoy this relationship. And that's what we are doing as believers, is we have all of Christ. Um, John says it in his letter. He says, he who has the Son has life. Not he who has the Christian teaching has life. Not he who is obeying enough or whatever. To be a Christian is to receive Jesus. And he is life. So some, some of the other things is... If you read, I know you guys ended last week with that beautiful, it's almost like a poem, um, where it's a famous one. It's Colossians 1.15 for a few verses. They're saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. And what Paul does there is he says, Jesus was responsible for the creation of the world. All things were made through him, by him, for him. And then what does he move into? He says, now even you believers... The fact that you are new creations in Christ, Jesus is responsible for that too. He not only made creation, but now you as the people of God, this new people, this new creation, he is made too. But do you know what I find interesting now? Is if we're honest with ourselves, if I just preach a sermon today about how perfect Jesus is, how worthy he is, how without blemish, how all these things, you could actually still walk away feeling down and condemned. Do you know why? Because the missing truth you need to see in here is I have been joined to him. 
Otherwise, you're going to end up thinking, he's there, I'm here, and I'm just trying to somehow get to him. I'm trying to imitate him. I'm trying to attain to whatever level he is at. But the, the thing that Paul gets at here, because it was a scripture that Leonard read last week, then um, Colossians 2, I don't know if we've got, you put it up. We've got from verse 9. Yeah, we've got from verse 9. You can take that off. But before we get into that, <laughs> sorry, I was just testing. But just the verse before he goes into what we're going to look at, Paul has said, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty deceit, by persuasive arguments about Christ, by philosophy, by all these things. And this section we're going to go into now is almost Paul's antidote to people taking you captive. And I I want us to look at that. What are some of the points Paul touches on here that are even going to help us from being taken captive by just false False, wafty, spiritual arguments about Jesus. Do you want to be free of those things? Because they are creeping around all over the show. And they parade themselves as highly Christian. They're not parading themselves as Satanism. They're parading as the truth. And they're coming with persuasive, emotional arguments. And we've got to be established in the truth. So let's just read that passage now. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 9 to 15. um, But then there's just a few things we'll hone in on. And we're reading from the ESV here. It says, For in him, this is Christ, the whole fullness of deity, of the Godhead, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. He says the word there is complete. You have been made complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, he abolished it, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a meaty passage. But a few things we're going to pull out of there today is these three things of alive, what does it mean to be made alive, forgiven, and free. And before, before I even jump into those, what is some of the language do you see popping up over and over in what we've read there? Pardon? With him, in him, through him. Every blessing, every benefit of the Christian comes to you in him. We sometimes have a concept of Christianity that when you get saved, God gives you like abstract things. Like he gives you peace. And our peace is almost like a commodity I own. He gives you life and life just wafts around you kind of like. He gives you forgiveness of sins. We might have the concept that he he credits it to your account. But that's true and not true. When you get saved, what does God give you? 
Jesus. And once he gives you Jesus, what are you still lacking? Nothing. So the fact you get forgiveness is because you're in Christ. You're given him. The fact you have life is there's life in Christ. You're given him. It's relational. If you don't see that, I think we end up relating to God each day praying, maybe saying, God, today would you give me wisdom? And we almost expect wisdom as a thing to come. Paul would say to you, no, no, God's given you Christ. And he's complete. And he's, and he's sufficient for everything you're going to face. And Christ is in you already, and he's the hope of glory. That would be his wording. He's not saying you sit there waiting for some of thing, things to come to you. He's saying God has given you everything you need in his son. Does that make sense? It can seem almost, does it seem weird? No, that's good. Because I remember when I, was a, when I was around 17 or 18, I remember a guy at my church doing a Bible study. And um, I think we were doing Ephesians. And he was using all this language, like, in him. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, is there a baby Jesus in me? Or am I a baby in him? Like, what do you mean? So I'm glad it's making sense, because... Maybe our minds think differently, but there's this concept that Paul is basically saying, however you want to unpack it, that the minute you expressed faith in Jesus, you looked at this, this revelation of this, this is the Son of God, and he's, and he's looking at you saying, I paid for your sins. Come be reconciled to God. He's somehow saying in that moment, you weren't just given something called salvation. You weren't just given forgiveness of sins. You were joined once for all to the most perfect one in the whole universe. Joined to him, married to him. Paul says in another place, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And from that moment on, what is true of Jesus is true of you. What he did is as if you did it. Is that, is that good news? Seems too good to be true almost. Is from the moment you become a Christian, God is never dealing with you as separate from Christ. There's no moment you ever approach him and say, Lord, please receive me today as James. James has died. James has died. He's gone. Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. My life is in him. So now every time I come to God and I say, Lord, hear my prayers, receive me, he's receiving me on the basis that I am joined to Christ. That's powerful news. So, okay, I'm not going to jump ahead on myself. Amen. So this, this whole theme of, un, we can call it union with Christ, being united to Christ, is, is something you have to click. Otherwise, the very thing God came to save you from, you're still going to live with. And one of the main things the fall of man brought into the world was separation from God. The whole message of the Bible is saying, be reconciled back to God. Fallen man, don't live away from God, live with him. 
And what the enemy wants, do you know what he wants for you? He wants you to be a Christian who still feels separated from God. Because sin will thrive in that environment. The minute you actually feel like I am living on my father's lap, that is my position. I'm united to him once for all. Sin is going to struggle to, to grow in that environment. Oswald Chambers, I mean, if you go to anyone's, go to anyone's house these days who's maybe a, a Christian family, go to their bathroom, look at their little magazine rack, and there's a good chance you'll find this book. Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. I find it often in people's bathrooms. I don't have enough time to read it. But <laughs> Oswald Chambers said a, a beautiful quote. He says, the beginning of sin is the suspicion that God is not good. The beginning of sin is that suspicion that God is not good. If the, if, if the enemy can somehow draw you away from that close intimacy of no condemnation, of, of, of union with Christ, if he can draw you away, then sin will thrive in that environment. So that's why, that's why this concept of union with Christ is so important. So let's jump in. Let's go from, you can put it up from like verse, it's a bit about made alive. I think it's verse 12. No, verse 13 actually we can go from. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Just read that bit. What does it mean to be made alive together with him? I think these can be words you know in your Bible, but I don't think they're fully clicked. In that, this explains to you what you need saving from. It, it, a, a parallel passage is in Ephesians chapter 2, very similar. It says, and you who were dead in your sins and transgressions, God made alive. That shows you that the problem, if anyone walks in these doors and they say, I'm interested in Christ, what do they need? They need life. They don't need instruction primarily. They don't need behavior reformation. The first thing they need is to be reconnected to life. Amen. Because your mind is darkened. You are alienated. You're cut off from God. You, you, can, you can show a blind man the sunset every day. And he's not going to be able to enjoy that sunset. He might feel the sun on his, on his arms. He might feel its warmth, but he'll never be able to enjoy it because he's blind to it. So you can, Jesus could have come into the world, walked around for three years, and not a single person would have been saved if God hadn't removed each person's blindness. Do you actually agree with that? John says it. Light has come into the world, but people rejected the light because they loved the darkness. You don't just put Jesus in front of someone and they naturally run to him. They run away from him. They don't naturally just bend the knee and say, okay, I want to call you Lord. Mm -mm. The fact the words even come out your mouth and you mean it is a miracle. That should, many, many people ask, they ask a very fundamental question. They say, how do I know that I'm actually born again? Maybe you're honest enough to say you still ask that. 
And one of the, the evidences you can find through looking at the negative, if you by default were dead in your sins and transgressions, if you had no appetite for Christ, now what has changed? Why are you interested in him now? Why do you love him? Why do you have a desire to obey him? Where did it come from? Have you ever thought that? Use that to actually strengthen your assurance that I'm not what I once was. There's life at work in me. There are desires and appetites here, which if I'm honest, they did not originate with me. Someone said it well, that it takes God to love God. And that's the mystery of it. If I see love originating in my heart for the Lord, I always remind myself that didn't start with James. And then when I feel the love running dry and low, it helps me go back to the Lord. I don't look inside for it. I don't go, oh, I better churn this up. I go, Lord, it started with you. You need, to, <laughs> you need to increase it. You need to sustain it. Amen. So this whole thing of being spiritually dead and alive is, is literally the story of most of the Bible. If you look at the whole Old Testament, God kept putting his law putting his instructions in front of his people, Israel, and there was no ability to follow it because they needed a new heart. They needed to be made alive in the inside, and that's the same case with us. And that's what Paul, why do you think Paul is reminding the Colossians? If you keep in mind what Leonard touched on about this Colossian heresy and what you know of it, why is it important to remind those people of this? that you were dead and now you're alive. Because what these false teachers were trying to do is they were trying to lure Christians to think that what you have right now of, of Jesus is not all there is. There's more. There's more. There's levels to climb. There's special knowledge to be obtained. If you get circumcised, then you're also in the inner, the, you're in the inner ring. All these things, and he's saying, no, all of you were made alive in Christ. You were joined to him. And there's resurrection life in you. And another thing I just want to touch on and made alive is, you know the phrase eternal life, which we use so much? Have you ever thought about what that fully means? Because it can become a catchphrase, I think, eternal life. Literally translated it means life of the ages. It means the life to come. Eternal life was always the thing you would experience in heaven. So when Jesus came along and preached to, to the Jews and in, in Jerusalem, if he said, he who believes in the Son has passed out of death and now has eternal life, do you know how that would have registered for them? He's saying what belongs to the end of history has already entered the present. That's what he's saying. It's broken in. You're not a Christian now with like a check that was, do you, uh, you, do you guys even know what checks still are? <laughs> you do kind of know what a check, they don't exist really anymore. But it's not like the Lord when you get saved gives you a check and then you just live broke the rest of your life. But he's like one day you're going to cash that check in. And then you'll experience riches and wealth. Hey? No. He says to you, he who believes in the Son has that life now. 
Amen. You might not have that full resurrected, resurrected body, all of that. That's going to come when Paul says you're going to put off this tent and you're going to experience this redeemed, glorified body. But he says even the, even the Holy Spirit being poured out into you always belonged to the end. It never belonged to the current, to the present. So the fact that you even have the Holy Spirit poured into your heart means the future has entered the present. You're eating already of that final harvest that you were going to experience. It's a come into the present. When you're worshiping and you're experiencing the presence of the Lord, when the Holy Spirit is witnessing with you that these words you're singing are true, you are literally experiencing heaven now. Is that good news? I'm hoping a lot of this, what it does, is we live almost with these, blink, these blinkers on. And we need to look at our Christian faith and say, Lord, take these blinkers off. It's like I've, I've mentioned before, it's like standing at the Pacific Ocean. Or basically any ocean. They probably all look the same size from the shore. <laughs> it's like standing there and you're looking at it with these blinkers on. And the Lord says, and he comes and he takes them off. And you're going, Wow. As far as the eye can see, I'm just seeing water. I'm seeing depth. And with our faith, we need that. We need to take those limits off and see who we really are. Because then we're not going to just get, if someone comes after I've seen all of this, and you try to sell me philosophy, self-help, not interested. Because Christ is enough, and he's satisfied, and he's done everything that is to be done. So I'm not going to be sold this cheap alternative. Next one is forgiven. And as, as I was prepping this, I think, I think this is something we overlook sometimes. Uh, maybe we reduce it to something very basic or similar. But if you look at, I, I don't have the scripture up there, but a famous scripture in the, in the Old Testament was Jeremiah 31. And I've preached on it before, the new covenant. It was the promise of this new covenant that God was going to have. And one of the promises there, it says, They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then, based on this, because, for, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He's saying that in this new covenant to come, our enjoyment and knowing of the Lord is grounded in no more, no more debt between me and the Lord. There's no accusing voice anymore saying, take another lamb to the temple. There's no voice saying, you need to sacrifice again for your sins. The thing now that drives the Christian to the presence of God is knowing that his sins have been forgiven. And I hope you know that. Because it can, it can sound very basic when, when I say it. But think it through. Think the weight of this through. That Paul says elsewhere, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's not saying there's no more condemnation until you, you sin again. Because that would be bad news. Amen? Then each day, you would be going up and down. You wouldn't know when, when can I approach God, when are things fine, is there peace? 
But what gives us this assurance is I, I would almost use the words and I'd say the soil, the ground that fruit grows from in the Christian life is no condemnation. That is the soil. If you want fruit to come up and bear fruit that even others can enjoy, if you're going on an, who's going on an outreach in the next few weeks? Quite a few here. If you're saying, Lord, bear fruit through me, use me, I would say meditate on this fact that you as his vessel, as his son or his daughter, can boldly approach him at any moment as a completely forgiven son and daughter. Amen. I think I need to hit that point harder. There's resistance in this room. I can feel it. Some of you don't believe it. And I think you're living under condemnation. And the devil doesn't want you to get this. Because he's smart. What did I mention earlier? What does he want in your life? Separation. And what does sins being held against you create? Separation. Here's a trick question. In The Lion King, who represents Satan? Scar. I mean, this metaphor might fall short in some ways. When Mufasa gets killed, the most heartbreaking moment of my childhood... Even now, if we watch it, I will cry. When Mufasa gets killed, and he's lying there in the ground, and Simba is there, walks up to his dad, and saying, Daddy, 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 it's me, wake up. And he nudges him, and he doesn't wake up. Who walks into the scene? Scar. And says, Simba, you killed him. You killed your father. What is he doing in that moment? He's accusing it's the voice of an accuser putting guilt on Simba. And what does that cause Simba to do? Run away and never come back. And then the very thing that gets Simba back to his, you could almost say, rightful inheritance is what? Remembering who he is. Amen. He says, remember who you are. That's why identity is the key to bearing fruit as a Christian. You, if you want to run towards your inheritance as a believer, say, Lord, show me who I am. Show me my rightful inheritance. So that when the enemy comes, I will know that it's a lie, that he's an accuser. And another thing I want to mention here, that what Paul's getting at, is if false teachers come along to a place like Colossae, and they're trying to lure these Christians into a false almost religion. When is it easiest to manipulate people religiously? What is a great tool to manipulate people with? Guilt. It's probably one of, this, one of the most used tools probably worldwide in a religious sense is guilt. Because with guilt, you can get people to do a lot of things. But they're not necessarily works that have life in them. A lot of them can be dead. And I think here in this church, the fact that Paul is going back to reminding them of this is that if they can know that there is no record of accusation from God's side to them anymore, if there's no hostility, no separation, then they're not going to be guilted into some pseudo-Christianity. And for us also, 
We need that realization. Is that something, I'll ask you, is that something, are you living with that daily and weekly? Are you more aware of the supposed sins in your life that are separating you from God? Or are you more aware of a once-for-all sacrifice offered for you that says no condemnation? Which one fills your mind more? Because I can promise you, according to how you think, certain fruit will come out of it. And the next one I want to touch on here is free. What does it mean to be free? And put up there, there you go. Nice, Shawnee. This picture, we've said God made us alive together with him, forgiven us all our trespasses. And he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a, in similar words, it's used in chapter 1, in chapter 2. It'll say of Christ that he is the head of all rule, all authority. And if you look at those words in your New Testament, you're going to find them many places. Romans 8 says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And things mentioned in that list, rulers authorities, spiritual powers. Again, you'll see it in Ephesians 6, that famous passage about the armor of God. It says, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual powers, principalities, rulers, authorities. Paul's even saying there, the very earthly authorities that crucified Jesus were not the main power behind it. Our battle's not just against... Remember, Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then we would be fighting. And I would be trying to run away and avoid the cross. And my disciples would be picking up a sword and fighting. But he says, my kingdom's not of this world. There's a bigger spiritual realm and battle going on here. And we, we need to have this realization that for you as a Christian now, you might have powers coming against you, earthly people. You might have your own mother and father coming against you. And their battle against you is not just you and them. There are powers and principalities, and there is darkness and there is light. And it's a scary thought, actually, that your own flesh and blood, your own family in this world, will hate you even for the sake of Christ your own friends, people around you, those close to you, are actually either with us or they're against us. And we need to have this, this firmly fixed in our minds. And the enemy, I think, will come to us and say, if you were truly free, then why is this happening in your life? If you were truly free, why does sin still come knocking at your door? Have you ever heard that accusing voice? Because he's trying to get you again to not believe your identity in him, in Christ. And the, the freedom that Paul points at here is that he has put Jesus forward in all these scriptures. Henry will probably do an incredible, masterful job next week, in the next session, and the next kind of teaching on Colossians. But 
all throughout the letter, he is putting Jesus forth the whole time as more than enough, as sufficient in everything. Now he goes to that same Jesus you have been joined to. You are filled in him. You lack nothing. And as a result of that, I would, I would hope and expect that even after this letter arrived in Colossae, it was given to Epaphras there, that the result in them was a being a rooted and established again in the gospel. That's what he prayed for for them. In, in 2 verse 6, if you still have it there in front of you, he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue in him. That's what he's getting at. That's why he's expounding. This is who you are now. This is when you got saved. This is true of you. So continue in that way. And I want that for us too. I want us as we go out into this week is that we have firmly in our minds, I know how I came into this relationship with Christ. I know what this covenant is based on. It's based on God's promises. It's based on sins forgiven in Jesus' name. No condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. That every power, every authority, even, I felt to even mention today, ancestral. If you have come from a family that either was involved in ancestral worship, or it could have been Freemasonry, it could have been, the list goes on, any sort of curses, blessings, spells, vows that were made, all those things have been disarmed at the cross. Do you believe that? Every power that, I don't know if you, I know Godfrey, we, we chatted, he would go back to his family, and even when his son Oi was born, and there was such pressure from the family to adhere to these religious, spiritual practices. And there's actually an intimidation. It's not just an offer, there's an intimidation that you must partake of this same worship, of this same sacrifice. And we need to look at all our enemies with love, still with love, and saying, no, you've been disarmed. You were made a spectacle of at the cross. And there's no weapon formed against me now that can prosper. Because you would have to defeat Christ in order to defeat me now. I'm on the winning side. When the enemy comes to con condemn you, because he will come, you must reply. And you must say, if you want to condemn me, you've got to get through Jesus. You would have to condemn. Do you, do you realize that right now? In order for Satan to condemn you, he would need to condemn Jesus. Has that registered in your head? There is no moment now as a Christian where God is dealing with you apart from Christ. Hallelujah. Donnie, are you with me, champ? So that, that is your armor that you can put on. That is your rejoicing. That is your worship each day is fueled by this knowledge that I'm in him and he's with me. So I want to I wanna pray for us. I was thinking just in terms of, Lord, what is, how do, what is our response to this? And as Paul preached this here, the response he was getting at was that you would be rooted and grounded in this knowledge. 
that you would be established in love, that you would abound in thanksgiving, and that you would resist all these powers coming against you. And I don't know what you're facing right now. Maybe you're facing despair. Maybe you're facing just numbness, despondency in your Christian life. Maybe these truths are even landing for you, and you remember there was once a time where I rejoiced in these things. But I feel like my spiritual senses have become dull. And you're trying to churn it up. I want to pray for you that whatever kind of just lethargy or lull is over you, that God would come again and just bring the truth, that you would abound in hope again. Amen. Lenny, did you want to add anything? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah thanks, James. So we are going to basically start ending it, but in order to land, I think I want to make a suggestion. Can we stand just where you are? <clears throat> I think one of the standout things for me was what James said here in the end, uh, especially about condemnation. It feels like that's something that stood out in his sermon tonight, that, um, that we are not to be a people who are condemned. And condemnation is that whisper of the enemy the whole time saying you are not good enough and reminding of your sin. And the fact of the matter is, yes, we do sin, but in Jesus, we can conquer those things and we are forgiven, like he said. So I want to just stand still with that thing of condemnation because I think maybe God wants to do something there. I think uh, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction, I know that I'm doing this with Jesus and I can overcome. Condemnation pushes me away from him. Does that make sense? Conviction pushes me towards God so that I can overcome the sin. Condemnation pushes me away from God and I run away. And I think there's some people here who are struggling with a lot of condemnation at the moment. You are aware of your sin, maybe acutely aware of your sin. And instead of running towards God, you, you keep running away from God. You feel like you cannot approach God. And that is a telltale sign of the fact that you are struggling with condemnation. And God does not want us to be condemned. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you do not have to be condemned. So maybe where you're standing, I think there's probably going to be a bunch. The question is, are you more aware of your sin or more aware of God? That's the big question. And if you're more aware of your sin and that keeps pushing you away from God, then we want to pray together. So just where we're standing, I'm not even going to ask us to close our eyes. I'll pray a prayer, but can I ask you, if you, if you struggle with condemnation, that you would raise your hand and that the rest of us can lay our hands on you and I want to pray. So wherever you are, come, if you're more aware of sin, raise your hands. Okay, so many. So put your hands on the people around you who are, who are saying that, um, that they need prayer. Yeah, so that we can take a moment and just trust you. We're not trusting... We are always trusting for less sin, but that's not the point here. The point is that their eyes would be opened up to know that they are forgiven in God and that He walks with them. Okay, so that's, that's the prayer. It's not praying, Jesus, give them more of you, like James said. It's, Lord, open up their eyes to the fact that they are in you and that they are forgiven. So I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, I pray for every person specifically now who have raised their hands. Lord, people who um, often stand condemned, who are so aware of their sin, Lord, in a bad way, and who feel like they need to run away from you the whole time because of the sin that they deal with, Lord. 
Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open their eyes to what James preached today, Lord, that they would know that they are in you, Lord. Show them that they are in you. Show them that when you died on the cross, they died with you. When you were resurrected, they were resurrected with you, God. Show them, open up their eyes, Lord. Thank you that you promise that when we ask for forgiveness, you forgive, Lord. You do not hold it against us. You do not push us away. You do not ask us to pay penance before we can be forgiven. You say you are forgiven because you are in me. And Lord, just where these people are standing, Lord, I pray for the revelation of that to just drop into their hearts. Let it drop into their hearts, Lord. I pray that whenever sin comes knocking on their door, that they would run towards you and not away from you, Lord. That they would not feel that they are not welcome in your presence, but that they would boldly come into your presence. Lord, the blood of Jesus was shed for each one of us and for each one of them. Lord, I pray that they would be so aware of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for them. But open eyes right now, God. So maybe take a moment. Just pray for those people around you. Just take a moment. You can pray for them.